0: time for another edition of Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, it being the first Monday of the Month of Love, and we're broadcasting from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and as usual, we have a diverse and interesting selection of reading for book lovers around Cape Town, or if you're streaming online, wherever it is you're listening from. Melvin Minar fell under the influence of acclaimed Nigerian author Chigozi Obiyama's. An orchestra of minorities. Beverly Ruas-Muller applauds Sir Salman Rushdie's latest novel, Quixote, loosely based on the classic Don Quixote story, and which was shortlisted for the booker last year. Philip Todris spoke to John Matteson about his new book, released in December, titled Cyril's Choices, Lessons from 25 Years of Freedom in South Africa and Penny Lorimer discovered Canadian author Louise Penny with her most recent A Better Man and also read A Death in the Medina by James von Leyden. John Hanks found value in Grantfold and Graham Spencer's Saving the Last Rhino and Beryl Eichenberger regales us with her views on Fiona Neal's Beneath the Surface as well as Kate Furnival's Guardian of Lies. Philippa Schaeffitz delved into The Africa Cookbook, written by owner of the Africa F- Café, Portion Bao, And Leslie Beek perceives the shift in teen reading, with The Choice Between Us by Edith Bulbring, Singing Down the Stars by Noreen Dorman, and The Music Box by Toby Bennett. Melvin Minna, you were enchanted by Chigozi Obiama's An Orchestra of Minorities.
1: How quickly does a good read cast a spell? This was my thought at the riveting conclusion of An Orchestra of Minorities, the second novel by the Nigerian writer Chigozie Obihama. Already widely acclaimed and shortlisted for the booker, as was his previous novel, The Fisherman, the book doesn't start as an easy read, and along the way there are numerous language obstacles to negotiate. but. After breathlessly wading through the 512 pages, I was spellbound, under the influence, if you wish. Obioma is a prose magician and a narrative craftsman of note. Spellbound is an apt word because Obioma whips up a world in which the ancient mythology of the Nigerian Igbo people is fully engaged in a story that plays out in the very humdrum but harsh reality of love. Survival and crooks, the delight of the book is the way in which the magic side of spirits, bad and good, old and new, counterbalances the individual hardship of love story with a subtle but clever reference to the Greek travail of Homers Odysseus. The story is told by a narrator who has lived for hundreds of years as personal guardian spirit. This allows for delightful bursts of humor to shine even in tragedy. The story is about Shinonzo, a young poultry farmer who stops a woman attempting suicide by hurling two of his prized chickens into the river. To Nadali, this sacrifice is remarkable and leads to a passionate love affair. But she is from a wealthy family who objects to their union because she is uneducated. Shinonzo then decides to sell his possessions to attend a university in cyprus here he discovers that he had been scammed done in by a friend and all is not what it seems without money without contact with his beloved wandering around in a strange world he faces the grim realities of a stranded outsider because of various bad encounters he loses hope in relationships it seems the world and circumstances continue to push him away from his dream, from his home, and from Nadali. After a wrongful turn of four years in jail, he finally returns to find Nadali now married. A long and woeful tale, it is narrated by Shinondo Shi, or guardian spirit, who recounts his host's life to fellow spirits in a kind of otherworldly tribunal based on Igbo myth. Each chapter is intoned with praises to the ancient spirits and remembrances of past deeds, good and bad. Traditional sayings, moral proverbs, intersperse the narration, stirring up good reading tension for the story to continue. A strong traditional African slant underscores remarks about behavior, determination, destiny and morality vis-a-vis the corrupt decadence of the West, but it's never overplayed. It is a particular skill of Obi-Hamas to give voice to the somewhat foolish she, because it solves the old problem of omnificent storytelling and provides a dash of comedy. The enigmatic name, an orchestra of minorities too, can be read as a gentle pudan of Western thought, but it is explained as the voices of the smaller, less obvious birds present in the backyard and garden. It is a gorgeous book.
0: Beverly Ruiz Muller read Sir Salman Rushdie's Booker shortlisted Kishot, which is loosely based on the classic Don Quixote story. Sir Salman Rushdie's latest novel is a book within a book, a kind of
2: ventriloquist trick in which a writer of little talent creates Kishot, a courtly adult salesman of Indian origin who falls in love with a celebrity reality TV star, Salma R., With his imaginary son, Sancho, Keyshot journeys across a crazed United States of America on his way to meet her, a sort of quest, while his author-creator, also called Brother, has to handle challenges, namely family issues of his own, not dissimilar to Keyshot's, but perhaps not as brave or as courtly. Keyshot has a sister, the human trampoline, Now, I hastily add that the author reveals that she is not a sexual springboard, as the name implies, but a literal boost to women, whom she helps with small loan funding. The book is a new version of Tilting at Windmills, mirroring the land in which Sir Salman now lives, one that both harbors and horrifies him, a man whose life was once genuinely at risk because of a fatwa and who is not a stranger to the grotesque version of reality. At its heart is a quest for love and kindness in a world crazed with greed and vanity. It parodies the horrors of a disintegrating, often deliberately ignorant society, which is literally crumbling, at least in this book, at the end of the world. It is a proto-apocalyptic novel which offers many truths within its coruscating passages. As all Rushdie's books, this is densely written, perhaps more so than most. You will recognize many references to popular culture, and if you're sharp, other famous literary references. He offers this explanation of literary borrowing. Brother explains to Son that so many great writers have guided me along the way. Is it okay to do that, asks son? To which brother replies, we need this because of our inability to give life true and coherent meaning. And because as a species, some of us may be losing our moral compass and becoming creatures out of a barbaric, pre-human, long-toothed past. Monsters tormenting the human presence. One of Rushdie's most The piercing dissections is that of evil scent, uh, spelled as the coin, a character very thinly described on Elon Musk, an extended and apt parody of that unusual man. The imaginary son Sancho asks his father, What is normal? Is normal a family living on a sofa, watching TV, having a group hug every now and then, while ads show in America that it's anti anti-vaccines and the media is a hoax, and a fat man in a red hat screaming at other people, also fat in red hats, about victory? He says to his son, we are undereducated and overfed. Our president looks like a Christmas ham and talks like Chucky. We're America, bitch, and on and on, that, that, that. Keyshot shot says normal doesn't feel so normal to me and his son wisely replies it's normal to feel that way in the end it's Sancho's blue fairy a kind of godmother who explains to him that love selfless love is the most important of all human endeavors and that means not what's good for you but what's good for those you love go back and to make it right, is the primary advice of this powerful novel, shortlisted for last year's Booker Prize. In conclusion, I have also just finished reading another novel, shortlisted for the prize last year, Elif Shafak's 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world, which describes the dying brain of an Istanbul prostitute and her five wonderful friends who loved her selflessly, which coincide rather nicely with Rushdie's message. Shapock's book was reviewed in more detail by Baron Eisenberger last year, and you can catch that on the FMR podcast. Both books were very, very worthy Booker shortlisters, and I would have been pleased and indeed glad if either of them had won. Very highly recommended. <laughs>
0: Was as time goes by played by dan hill and his orchestra with dan hill himself on clarinet philip todras spoke to john mattison about his new book cyril's choices and called it a good read that raises questions about whether in fact cyril has any choices john mattison will be one of the guest speakers at the jewish literary festival on 15 march
3: john mattison Cyril's Choices, Lessons from 25 Years of Freedom in South Africa is published by Missing Ink Now I see there's another subtitle which I didn't even realise An Agenda for Reform John, let's start at the beginning What really motivated you to look at this particular time frame and to make some suggestions about where we are and where we're going?
4: Well, Philip, I thought it was time to look at what we did right and what we did wrong. And, and I found a lot of surprises. I looked at the military. I looked at the economy. I looked at our foreign policy. And I found a lot of things very different than I expected, both good and bad. I looked at our relationship with Russia, the parallels between what we did in South Africa when we started to redistribute the ownership of the, the um, major enterprises in South Africa. At the same time, the Russians were doing the same thing. At the end of communism, so there were a lot of interesting surprises that I found, and I think it's useful to understand i don't think we do enough looking at the facts on the ground when we decide our policies.
3: and what did you discover when you did
4: that? I presume this all comes out in your book Well, for example, uh, on the economy, i found uh, I read dozens of government reports and, and consultants' reports to government, and I found something surprisingly well. Researched that the government knows what's wrong but doesn't fix it. For instance, Rob Davies, the former Trade and Industry Minister, he commissioned a report and, to his credit, he published it. And it said that South Africa prematurely deindustrialized. Well, that's a very serious conclusion, and yet you never saw a, a public debate and you never saw a change of policy to account for that. The same thing with mining. You know that people think our mining is dying out because we, all our our mines are big and Old and and deep and so there's nothing left but the real answer when you look into it carefully is that we have stopped exploration we're not finding new mines as we are everywhere else in the world. The South African companies, Anglo American, BHP, Billiton, Glencore, they're finding new mines in Chile, in Belarus, in Australia, but not here because we're not doing exploration, and that's also a result of government policy and political interference.
3: And can you explain that a little bit better than that? There must be some serious reasons why they are not, and you do discuss that in the book.
4: Yes, well, I give you a simple uh, quote from somebody I quote in the book. A CEO of a big mining company, said if you want me to put billions of dollars into a hole in the ground in South Africa and only get the money back over 30 years, I want to see mining charter number 4 and 5 the ones you've got one and two are not good enough because there's a constant change of policy. So that policy insecurity is devastating. You can set tough rules if you're the government, but you have to stick to them. You can't have a, a system where every, every uh, year or two there's a new mining minister and every new mining minister re-examines the whole process anew. You can't do that with mining. So those are simple things. But I also looked at where we are in the international community. We have BRIC, the BRICS relationship with Russia and China, India and Brazil. But those countries have changed their politics. Their their constitutional attitudes in some cases have become very uh, right-wing populist. At the same time, uh, if you look at our relationship with Russia, Russia and South Africa started 30 years ago on the same agenda of redistributing the ownership of, of the major corporations. Russia went through two waves of state capture by oligarchs and the second wave under Putin matched the state capture wave where we created the South African oligarchs the Guptas and they landed up working together and benefiting together from the nuclear arms deal, nuclear energy deal.
3: So the one word that you used I think is relevant insecurity and not knowing now maybe that was the whole thing that ramaphoria was all about. So people suddenly had a sense of more security because things perhaps would They felt more secure in his hands. Is this what is playing out? Because some people are feeling a little bit insecure about the inability to move?
4: Well, of course, there's been a big change. Uh, uh, you, you, you've seen e- e- everything from euf- euphoria or ramaphoria to, to despair or rama despair. It's been a real shift in the time. And I think, you know, people like President Ramaphosa, they trust him. They see him as a decent man and a person of common sense. But the truth is people are very frustrated and there's even a question of whether he can survive. My view, after talking to people in the two camps in the ANC and there are two distinct camps is that actually he will survive that the fight back people don't necessarily want to get rid of him but they want to keep him weak. They think if they get rid of him the ANC will collapse and, they were, uh, and they, uh, they'll lose power and they want to stay in power but keep him too weak to, to do too much uh, that hurts their interests.
3: Now you tell a lot of the story and that what I want to compliment you about is that you tell it very well reading through it, it's also gives one an interesting glimpse into your own personal journey in terms of where you were 20 years ago and the various organisations and countries you've travelled through and the lessons you have learnt. But I'm wondering, John, if, in fact, I'm going to ask you two questions. Does Cyril really have choices? And secondly, what have we really learnt? You said lessons from 25 years of freedom in South Africa. I think the one thing if to be sarcastic about things and be the cynic is the only thing that history teaches us is that history never teaches us
4: well uh, in terms of Cyril's choices I have to say it was a journey when I started rewriting this book updating all my ideas because I'd started this book 30 years ago I realized that things were changing and when he first came to office we were very hopeful now we realize we have to do it ourselves so I'm arguing that civil society is South Africa's big strength it's absent in Russia and it's present here and brought down and we have to bring, bring the change. In terms of what we've learned, you can learn, and I studied particularly the Asian tigers and specifically Japan, and I went there, and they have ways. The Asian tigers have grown their economies and filled up the jobs by doing very specific things, and we're not doing them.
3: And I think what we need to do is convince Sir Ramaphosa to read your book. <laughs> so we've been speaking to John Madison about Cyril's Choices Lessons from 25 Years of Freedom in South Africa and it's published by Missing Inc.
0: I can't think of anyone who wouldn't want to read more about Cyril's choices, so now's your chance to win one of two copies we're giving away of John Mattison's timely book. Simply answer this. Who is the Cyril referred to in the book title? Call in to FMR on 021 401 1013 And give us your answer. The winner will be contacted after the show. Penny Lorimer, you were pleased to discover author Louise Penny via her latest, A Better Man. And you were happy for a change of scenery in A Death in the Medina by James Von Leyden.
5: I discovered Canadian author Louise Penny only quite recently, and I'm very glad I did. She's written 15 novels, and the latest one, published in August 2019, is called A Better Man. They all feature Inspector Armand Gamache of the Sûreté du Québec, and there are his usual co-stars too, including his beloved wife, renee marie poet Ruth Zardo and her pet duck, and his supportive colleagues, Superintendent Lacoste and Chief Inspector Beauvoir, Gamache's protégé, who is now also his son-in-law. In this episode, Gamash has recently been demoted from his command of the Surete to its head of homicide, a far inferior position. The position was offered to Gamash as an insult by the Minister of Justice, who wanted him to refuse and retire. But Gamash's battle against corruption and power-hungry political manoeuvring is not over yet. He's also being accused on social media, inaccurately of course, of cowardice, murder and worse during a previous case, and the Twitterati are going mad. In addition, at this time of personal crises, floodwaters are rising across the province, threatening, amongst other places, Three Pines, the village where Gamush and his wife have made their home and where many of his closest friends also live. The Canadian climate is always both backdrop and character in these books. And then, in the middle of the turmoil, a father approaches Gamache, pleading for help in finding his daughter. As the weather crisis grows, Gamash recognises that the search for the missing girl should be abandoned. But with a daughter of his own, and faced with the question, how would you feel, his empathic nature does not allow him to do so. Then, as the waters rise, a body is discovered, and the victim's father threatens revenge. All this reminds me of a quote, the source of which is in question, that says, The writer's job is to get the main character up a tree, and then, once they are there, throw rocks at them. Louise Penny has certainly done this. To quote her, Inspector Gamache is a man who's seen too much and who's come to a fork in the road, as we all do, and instead of becoming embittered and armoured, he's become compassionate and he understands the value of life. Gamache is made of strong and principled stuff and manages the awkwardness of his demotion with humility and without rancour and the personal attacks with patience. All this is more than enough reason to make me fall in love with him immediately, and I know I'm not alone, as this book is named the number one New York Times bestseller. The first book in the series has also been made into a movie, which is available on Acorn TV. I think I may give it a try sometime. It's probably ideal to read the series in order from the first one, Still Life, as Gamache's story and that of his family and friends keeps developing, but I've read a few out of order, without too much difficulty. Most often, I tend to get thrillers set in the UK or America to review, so it's good to have one set somewhere different for a change, and A Death in the Medina by James von Leyden takes place in Marrakesh in Morocco during Ramadan. 24-year-old detective Karim Belkassem is struggling to fast during a heatwave while holding down two jobs, one as a policeman and a second one as an overnight security guard which he's had to take in order to pay for his sister's wedding. Karim is trying to concentrate sufficiently on research into the sale of counterfeit high-end watches when a young Englishwoman comes to report the theft of her bag containing her travel documents. On the same day, a Moroccan girl is found dead in a handcart. Beside her is a strip of cardboard on which is written, My name is Amina Talal and I am a whore. Karim knows the dead girl's family and knows that he was, in fact, once betrothed to her until their fathers quarrelled and cancelled the arrangement. But this means that Karim feels he has a personal stake in finding her murderer and, although the case is given to another policeman, he continues with his own under the raps investigation. Then Amina's brother confesses to the crime, but Karim is not convinced of his guilt. Gradually, he uncovers shadowy secrets concealed behind the walls of the Medina. The writer weaves together all the threads of this thriller into a colourful cloth that effectively reflects the rich atmosphere of a city which he obviously knows and loves. I reviewed A Better Man by Louise Penny and A Death in the Medina by James von Leyden.
0: Remember to call in for a chance to win one of two copies of John Mattison's latest book, Cyril's Choices. Answer this, who is the Cyril referred to in the book title? Call in to FMR on 021-401-1013 and give us your answer. The winners will be contacted after the show.
6: You've got to be
7: MR presents concert day to date due to the second phase of construction work at the Cape Town City Hall our broadcasts could not go out live so we're bringing you a delayed broadcast instead but good things are always worth waiting for on Thursday 6th of February magnificent mozart the american maestro brandon keith brown conducts one of the most individual and imaginative young pianists of our time florian Ulig, in mozart's piano concerto number no. 20 also on the program are Rossini's Overture, The Italian Girl in Algiers, and Dvořák Symphony No. 6 in D. FMR's Concert Day-to-Date is proudly sponsored by Galinda Moser of Remax Living.
2: La Boheme, one of the world's best-loved, most popular operas, comes alive for Cape Town Opera in a stunning new production, directed by Matthew Wilde and co-produced with the Concert Theatre Byrne with maestro Jeremy Silver conducting the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra. La Boheme is filled with Puccini's soaring melodies and is on at the artscape from 14th to 22nd February. Book through CompuTicket.
0: Before the break, you heard The Glory of Love, sung by the then 12-year-old Durban soprano, Megan Katz. John Hanks may not have found all the answers, but greatly enjoyed Grant Fowled and Graham Spencer's Saving the Last Rhino.
7: With the title, Saving the Last Rhinos, I was hoping to find some new options for addressing what has become one of the most distressing issues of concern facing local and international conservation agencies, namely the relentless pressure by poachers on the five remaining species of rhinos, two of which, the white and the black, occur here in Africa. This is not really what this publication is about, but it is not a disappointing book, Instead, it is a most interesting and enjoyable account of Grant folds life, from growing up on a farm in the Eastern Cape as a barefoot bumpkin to becoming a goat farmer and then to dedicating his life to conserving Africa's endangered wildlife, including rhinos, not just in South Africa but also in the DRC. What I regard as the most positive part of the book is Grant's awareness of the vital importance of environmental education – and engaging local communities if conservation projects are going to succeed, an approach he reinforced in 2015 when he embraced with passion and enthusiasm an initiative started by Kingsley Holgate called Rhino Art – Let the Children's Voice Be Heard. This innovative campaign has now reached over 500,000 young people, mainly throughout Central and Southern Africa, but also more recently in Vietnam – with a rhino conservation message that encourages them to voice their thoughts about rhino poaching. It not only increases conservation awareness amongst the youth, but also involves local communities that all too often remain silent on rhino poaching incidents, adding to the groundswell of public support needed to end rhino poaching and other wildlife crimes. One account of the remarkable and dedicated people he met, which stood out for me, was that of John Kahekwe's single-minded commitment to guerrilla conservation in the DRC. He achieved this not only by protecting the gorilla's habitat, by linking this to community development projects that provided employment to those who'd otherwise have been poachers, but also by providing classrooms much-needed education for a rapidly growing population of young people. Grant Foles encapsulated this exemplary approach when he wrote, People such as John are the future of conservation. I also appreciated the courageous chapter he wrote on what he called eco-scamming, a remarkably detailed account of the dishonesty and misappropriation of funds by a conservation NGO to describe, and I quote, the astonishing and gargantuan lies being told under the guise of saving photogenic animals should serve as a wake-up call to all of us before making a donation to an NGO without first checking its credentials and track records. Saving the Last Rhinos is a remarkable story of one man's commitment to wildlife conservation and the people and animals he encountered on what he described as his convoluted journey. I hope it will inspire others to follow in his footsteps. The title again is Saving the Last Rhinos. It's written by Grant Foles and Graham Spence as well. as published in 2019 by Jonathan Ball. And you can buy a copy at 295 rand.
0: Beryl Eichenberger highlighted lies, betrayal and family dynamics in two different books, Beneath the Surface by
8: Fiona Neal and Guardian of Lies by Kate Furnival. Now that the hurly-burly of the festive season is over and the tension that seems to lurk around these gatherings, you may well be looking for a weekend of reading for some relaxation. Family occasions have their own dynamics, as do the families themselves, with the skeletons that tumble out of the cupboards at the least appropriate moments and the lies to cover up. I seem to have picked up books recently about lies and betrayals in families, so thought these might intrigue you, or perhaps you'll recognise some of the situations, or not, but great and absorbing reads nonetheless. Beneath the Surface by Fiona Neal, is a sometimes tortured read, purely in the sense that there are scenes that tighten your chest, which I think is the core of good writing, with a storyline that is so absolutely believable. Imagine the seemingly perfect setting, the fens where water is part of daily existence, a family forced to move homes but held together by doting mom Grace, whose chaotic childhood is hidden from all, Secret number one. Mild and stable father Patrick, an art history teacher, is struggling with debts and reduced teaching hours. Secret number two. As parents, they strive for a balanced and warm family. Elder daughter Lily is the talented teenager, good at everything and popular with it, while sister ten-year-old Mia is the misfit, too curious and speculative for her own good with an imagination that runs riot. The family have recently moved homes to a development that, to say the least, is simply not up to scratch. With a house full of poor workmanship, so the very structure of their lives starts crumbling. When Lily suddenly collapses in class with a mysterious illness, their seemingly ordered world suddenly starts disintegrating and speculation in their tight-knit community spreads like a spring tide. With the mix of a project on the Anglo-Saxon burial grounds, a garage full of unpacked boxes, insatiable curiosity and a backlash of memories and mistakes, mistakes that will stretch the family dynamics and test a child's understanding of adult relationships, the story develops at a fast pace. Grace is the controlling mother, thinks she knows everything about her elder daughter to the extent that, as teenagers do, Lily has lied and deceived her. Mia develops her own theories around the illness after she uncovers a secret, number three, that Lily has been holding. Neil holds you from the beginning, and I particularly liked how she uses the water as an analogy. Just as we hide secrets beneath the veneer of normality, so the surface of the water covers deep, dark secrets. Revealing how the threads of the past intrude on the present is the strength of the story— Anil delves deep into the psyche to extract the strands of dysfunction, making this a compelling read. Dark and humorous at times, this is an incisive and probing novel. She dissects the patterns of behavior and how, though we may reinvent ourselves, the past is the bridge to the present, affecting every part of your life. Guardian of Lies by Kate Vernival, published by Jonathan Ball, takes us back to 1953, to a France that is recovering slowly, painfully from the devastation of war and the very fragile peace between the West and Soviet Russia. Furnival is a master storyteller, and I have enjoyed all of her books. Her selection of exotic locations and intriguing plots take you from page to page in a fever of what's going to happen next? And these are stories that compel you to read until the early hours. This is no exception, beset as it was with spies, intrigue, and, of course, a little bit of love. Furnival brings in the romance without it becoming slushy or too intimate, a good balance in any popular novel. The young, headstrong Eloise Garsade wants to be a CIA agent, like André, the brother she idolises. Relocating to Paris from the Camargue bull farm of her childhood and a stern, unbending father, she is suddenly free of the constraints of a small town. Embracing the life, she finds a job as a private investigator with the elegant and enigmatic Clarisse Favre. While she has been rejected by the CIA, she hones her skills with a small agency. When André asks for help, she jumps at the chance, but a ruthless car chase ends with an accident of Eloise's making. André is badly injured and disappears from the hospital when two heavies come after him. Eloise does not know where he is, dead or alive, and blames herself for his injuries, an emotion that burrows deep. It is only when her father sends a message to come home urgently does she find some answers and many more questions. An American airbase has negotiated with her father to purchase some of his land to extend the base, much to the chagrin of the townsfolk and others more dangerous opponents. Danger threatens in every corner of this normally seductive part of the country as Eloise starts digging and discovering that all is definitely not what it appears to be. Who can she trust? Has her brother been turned? Are the people she cares about real? The components of the novel, lies, secrets, love, intrigue, make for compelling reading, and Furnival delivers every time. I was hard-pressed to pull out the undercover villains, and with a surprise on every page, even the most trustworthy, like Léon, local policeman and love interest, come under suspicion. She gets to the heart of the story and holds, builds it from a well-plumbed depth to the heights of a very satisfying read. Philippa
0: Schaefferts delved into The Africa Cookbook by Portion Bau, founder and owner of the popular Africa Cafe in Cape Town.
9: The Africa Cookbook by Portia Mabao, published by Quivertree. The Africa Cafe in Cape Town, a popular venue both for tourists and locals, was inspired by the author's travels through Africa. With her husband Jason, Portia opened her first cafe in 1992 in their dining room, seating 10. It was so popular they moved to a double-storey building and observatory, where they could live upstairs and accommodate 80 downstairs. Invited in 1999 by the Cape Town Heritage Trust, today's restaurant is housed in a three-storey building, in the CBD. Here it is no problem feeding 200 without compromising on quality. Never formally trained, Portia had loved cooking from an early age. The youngest child and only daughter, the kitchen was her playground. She was encouraged by a grandmother and mother who taught her cooking together in the evenings. Portia's passionate about African cuisine. Throughout the continent, she collected hundreds of recipes from home cooks. In this cookbook, with its bright eye-catching cover and picture per recipe, she shares recipes that capture the flavours and techniques of Africa. Porsche's innovative flair in the kitchen takes these dishes beyond tradition. All tried and tested that can be replicated in the home kitchen, adding a new dimension to daily menus. There are plenty of vegetable dishes and healthy grains, along with seafood and meat. It's a balanced way of eating in the African tradition. African people, to quote, love meat, but traditionally it wasn't eaten every day. Cattle was slaughtered for special occasions, and chicken was eaten only occasionally. They were kept to provide eggs, while goats were kept for milk. No one could afford to eat meat daily, so most meals were plant-based, with plenty of greens. There are so many non-meat dishes on the menu at the cafe. All the ingredients used in the recipes, healthy and organic-focused, are readily available at food markets and stores. The first section of recipes includes flavourful fritters, patties and tiny pies from Cameroonian groundnut puffs, Kenyan area patties, to sesame crusted Malawi, the and Simpson balls. As Porsche is gluten intolerant, she often uses corn flour or white rice flour instead of wheat flour. All need a particular dip which is organised in the second section together with sauces, marinades and relishes. A danya dip, Portia loves coriander. Ethiopian ayib yoghurt and herb dip, Moroccans their made with fringel and spices, is served as a dip for South African fet cook or used in a wrap or sandwich. A Mozambican puri puri dip, puri puri Swahili for chili, is also used as a marinade for chicken wings. Salad, sides, vegetarian, and bread come next. A Madagascan steamy stew of vegetables. Egyptian koshari, a street food with chickpeas, lentils, brown rice, and noodles. Porsche uses rice noodles because they're gluten-free. Seafood includes a cape mussel curry with coconut milk, an Africa cafe prawn curry, a Tunisian fish soup in the meat and chicken section, Ethiopian wat, Botswana seswa Masala, a traditional way of cooking meat that's commonly used to cook in bulk for special occasions. And a section on cocktails using lots of citrus, mint, fresh fruit, honey, rum. Mango and almond tarts are one of the tempting sweets, but the most popular dessert in the restaurant is an orange and walnut cake with orange sauce. Portia writes that for 27 years she has been begged and bribed to reveal the recipe. It is named after the orange and nut farm in the Zanin area on which her mom grew up. Portia's daughter, Luma Mira de Schmidt, conceptualized the Africa cookbook. She shares a mother's love of food and travel. The book is compiled and photographed by her. Lumaya works as a graphic designer and photographer.
6: I am more
0: was the popular Bring Him Home from Les Mis, sung by tenor Philip Kotzer. Leslie Beek perceives the shift in teen reading with The Choice Between Us by Edith Bulbring, Singing Down the Stars by Noreen Dorman and The Music Box by Toby Bennett.
2: It would take more space than I have here to work out how subtle is the change from gritty reality to dysfunctional dystopian but it has definitely happened. Teenage reading has shifted, and so have the ideas and concepts teenagers are prepared to countenance in their reading. The majority of the books I am sent for review these days have their background in other worlds, other futures, safe from the challenges of the present. A recent exception to this trend is Edith Bulbring's novel, The Choice Between Us. I approach this cautiously. Another struggle story. Will any young person read this, except if it's forced on them by virtue of being a set workbook? Having read it, I think they will. The premise is absolutely intriguing. Contrasting Johannesburg in 1963 with the present 50 years later, we follow the stories of a child in the past who is young enough to be completely politically naive, and a spiky modern-day teenager Who isn't? There is a secret to be uncovered, as there is, it seems, in most new novels these days across the board, but this one is deeper dug and difficult to excavate. What is it? What happened all those dusty years ago, and what has happened to the people who were such an integral part of the story? The research is meticulous, the feeling of a different time impeccable, and the suspense... Built with a masterly hand because there are two secrets linked and not linked two girls linked and not linked and there are many additional small secrets that tease and intrigue right to the end of the book this is an outstanding story of a time that deserves to be remembered this carefully and of the stories that were born in it the Sanram Gold and Silver Books from the 2019 Awards each escape into a different kind of reality or fantasy, or a bit of both. The winner of Gold, Sing Down the Stars by Noreen Dorman, a carefully built superreality of alien races and humans, plays out against the drama of an awakening space nymph who has called Nuri to serve her, if Nuri survives the training to do so. This is an intriguing book, marred a little by too much injury time when Yuri is rescued and taken to the clinic repeatedly where she is safe and can be healed some judicious cutting would have helped to pare the complicated story along it's very good the silver award winner the music box by Toby Bennett plays with other secrets dangerous ones that are destroying Jonathan Schmidt's mother and that threaten to erupt into his school and public life because something is wakening in the mists that surround Dowdale, something that John is unable to fight on his own, sure to be enjoyed by lovers of the mysterious and otherworldly. All three books were published by Tafelberg in 2019. They are The Choice Between Us by Edith Fulbring, Singing Down the Stars by Noreen Dorman, and The Music Box by Toby Bennett.
6: May each day in the week be a good day. May the Lord always watch over you. And may all of your hopes turn to wishes. And may all of your wishes come true May each day in the month be a good day
5: May you make
6: friends with each one you meet And may all of your days. May all of your memories be sweet The weeks turn to months And the months turn to years There'll be sadness and joy There'll be laughter and tears The one thing I pray Each day In the year Be a good day
0: was Mage Day, sung by Min And we have competition winners. And that's all we have for you this month. I think it certainly provides a range of choice for all tastes. Thanks to Ewan Ingalls for production and Rick Everett for the uplifting musical interludes.